Well, God's program on planet Earth did not begin on December 25th, zero. <laughs> there was a lot that happened in the Old Testament record that preceded the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of God made man. And Dr. Luke has, uh, has a special interest in some of those things that precede, in particular, the birth of John the Baptist. So we're going to see in today's text, in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80, the importance of the nativity of John in preparation for the nativity of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that as we go through this passage of blessing, that you will be blessed as you understand the importance of the coming of John the Baptist. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you, Lord. We, we just want to proclaim publicly that we believe in the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. This book that we have in front of us is your word. And we recognize that. And we want to express our gratitude for that. Help us, Lord, today. With all the distractions, with all of our fatigue, with all of our emotional difficulties, help us today to understand what your word would tell us today. Apply it to our heart, apply it to our mind, and help us to increase in Christ's likeness as a result of understanding the coming of John the Baptist. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80. And we, we like it when you go through your Bible, uh, when we have lessons here at the church, because we want to be accountable. We want you to check, you to check on us to make sure that we're uh, actually teaching what God has to say in his word. And as we look at this passage today, uh, we're going to see three major areas here. We're going to see a blessed birth in verse 57 through 66. Blessings to God in verses 67 through 75, and then blessings to John in verses 76 through 80. First of all, a blessed birth, beginning in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. God says, Luke writes, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, it came time to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zecharias after his father. But the mother answered and said, No, indeed, he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted to be, him to be called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them. All these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, what then shall this child turn out to be? But the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. This is a wonderful, wonderful continuation of the episode that began prior to this with uh, the coming, of course, of Gabriel uh, to Zechariah there of the temple and uh, the, the proclamation that, uh, that he would father uh, the one that was to go before Messiah. And then, of course, the uh, affirmation that occurs uh, to Mary as she has also received her uh, 
her conversation with Gabriel about the coming of Messiah within her own womb. And she goes and spends some time with Elizabeth there to affirm uh, what the Lord has taught her as well. So God is setting into motion uh, the, the, the longing of the ages that Messiah would come here. This is the greatest event that ever happened to this small village here in the hill country of Judea. It's so small they don't even bother to name it. Probably doesn't, didn't exist for long, perhaps, after the, the Roman destruction of that land here. Elizabeth has uh, been remained in seclusion for months to the point where she couldn't keep uh, her pregnancy hidden anymore. And people understand about her miraculous marriage. They have been sterile for years and they were advanced in, in their age now. And this is another example of what God does. He, he uses the weak and the infirmed and those who are past uh, the ability to be able to do things for themselves in order to receive uh, his own glory here. Of course, Mary came down, and we understand that Mary stayed about three months and then returned home. That's what verse 56 prior to this says. So she evidently left right prior to the birth of John because she's not mentioned again. And, and uh, you know, you've got to be careful making an argument out of silence, but that's a pretty good argument because uh, uh, you would have thought that the mother of Messiah would have been mentioned in all this, this text here. And they celebrated this event at the village. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her and they were rejoicing with her there was just there was a communal worship and and just an, a, a spirit of awe about the place because they are watching every day this miracle that's occurring in their friend elizabeth and elizabeth was no doubt had a lot of relatives in there she was certainly loved but this is that principle that we all need to to embrace from romans chapter 12 that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep it's easy for us to become isolated. It's easy for us to become inward. It's easy for us, especially if we've been hurt, we've been bullied, we've been abused, we've been disappointed over time, just to develop calluses over time and to avoid celebrating, to avoid rejoicing with those rejoicing, weeping with those who weep. This, this, is, this is Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, that's what he did. Basically, as you, learn, as you read the Christmas carol, it is packed with theology. And one of the things that it is intended to show us is this is what happened when we become self-centered, self-focused, turned in on self and forget others. We're not like the people in the village here with Elizabeth. We don't care about anybody else. And what we end up doing is become more miserable, more depressed, more anxious, more burdened because there's no outlet for what God has given us. There's no outlet for grace. There's no outlet for love. That's what we want to avoid during this Christmas season. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But so the angel's promises come true. Uh, Luke chapter uh, 1, verse 14, uh, the uh, angel says this, that you will have joy and great gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. It's a fulfillment here of this angelic prophecy. But according to custom, it says here that it happened on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. And again, to understand this, you need to understand Old Testament uh, law. Circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign and the seal of the covenant that he was under. Genesis chapter 17, God says this, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants, that every male among you who is the eighth day old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. The point was to say this child is set aside as a special person. They are part of the visible community of God. The other nations around them did not circumcise their boys, but Israel was going to do that. This was the sign. This was the seal. 
That, of course, continued in the law of Moses. Leviticus 12 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So like baptism, circumcision was a sacrament that marked a person's entrance into the covenant community. It did not bestow salvation any more than baptism bestows salvation. It did not say this person is for certain is a believer. What it said was they're part of the community of God's people on earth. And it is hoped that they would become a believer. Over time, uh, evidently, uh, during this time of circumcision, also became, perhaps during the intertestamental period, we don't know, perhaps it also became the time when they would formally announce what the child's name is. This was, so it turned into also not just circumcision on the eighth day, but also a naming ceremony. So that's just, it's sort of assumed that we understand that as we come into this. Uh, but, uh, and then they, they could say, what's the child's name going to be? They assumed it was going to be Zacharias, because he was going to be a junior. Right? That makes sense. I mean, the man's really waited a long time for a baby boy. You know, wouldn't you name him Junior? Wouldn't you name him? That was the tradition. He should be a junior. But Elizabeth had none of that because she knew what Gabriel had said, that his name was to be John. And evidently, even though he could not speak, Zechariah had communicated to Elizabeth that the baby's name was going to be a, was, the baby was going to be a boy and was going to be named Jane, uh, uh, John. So there's this major breach of acceptable etiquette. There's a, there's a major faux pas. Now, remember, they, they are a priestly class. So probably almost all the, the rabbi, all the, the, the relatives around them were priestly. So doing the right thing really, really mattered to them. And they're just offended that they want to name this baby John. So they quickly dismiss Elizabeth, and then they turn to Zechariah. And it says here they made signs to him. So he's evidently not just mute, but also deaf. So they're trying to say, what do you want to name this child? You know, you got a little bit of humor in this thing. El baby, you know, what do you, and, uh, and, and he gets a tablet. His name is John. <gasps> wow, okay. We feel sort of stupid dismissing Elizabeth now. So he gets to have his name is John. And the reason why is, uh, is because that's what Gabriel told him. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Notice what happens next. And he asked where Tabent wrote it, his name is John, and they were astonished. And at once his mouth, at once when he wrote the name, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak praises to God. Isn't that interesting? Now, when the angel came to him before, in verse 20, he said this, you shall be silent. This is a judicial punishment because he didn't believe what the angel was going to say. How can an old man have a baby? How can my baby be the, the forerunner that's prophesied in Malachi? He didn't believe him. But the, so the angel said, you shall be silent, unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. Now, if you didn't read the rest of Scripture, you would have assumed that his, his tongue would be loosened once John was born. But he wasn't. He was still mute up until this point. Why? Because Zechariah is now showing the faith he didn't have nine months earlier. He's believing what Gabriel said. He is standing out publicly proclaiming his name is John. The judicial punishment was over with. He could now speak. And what's the first thing he does? He praises God. We contend, to, we contend to feel like God is holding back on us, uh, punishing us, 
And one of the things you want to first think about is what area am I being unfaithful in? Why is God holding back something on us? Because it may be he is waiting for you to do the other thing he told you to do. No parent among you gives his child seconds when his plate of first is full. Well, God's the same way. He is waiting for you to be faithful in the little things so that you can be faithful also in much. And we keep talking, we, we, we keep praying, God, use me, do this, do this, and do this. And you just feel stymied sometimes. And it could be for many other reasons. I'm, I'm not, I don't know what your situation is. But if it's a situation like Zechariah's, it's because you haven't been faithful with what he's already told you to do. We want to do the big thing. We want to do the glorious thing. God is more often than not found in the whisper, not in the lightning, not in the earthquake. What whisper has God given you to obey so that you, he can give you more to obey down the, ray, the road? So basically, Zechariah, the other point to make of this is Zechariah's suffering increased his faith. Had it all worked out, and if he not had to sit there and think for nine months, I'm such an idiot, I can't believe I didn't believe Gabriel. I mean, Gabriel. Like, you're supposed to believe Gabriel, right? The last time he had shown up was with Daniel during the Babylonian captivity. Why did he not believe that? He had to think about that. He had to muse upon that. He had nine months to think about the importance of faith and how God is honored by faith and how faith is required when the world doesn't make any sense at all. So what does he do? As soon as his tongue is loose, he, he shouts out uh, praises to God. The result was even further astonishment because of the, the muteness. They knew there was something going on there with God. It says here, fear came to all those around them that these matters were being talked about in all of the hill country of Judea. John Calvin remarks, let us accept everything with a glad and willing spirit, knowing that he will return it into blessing and that we gain much more when his hand chastises us than if our sins go unpunished. So God even uses our sins as he uses John for his, uh, as he uses Zacharias for his own glory. So this judicial punishment of muteness is over with, and, and the result of all of these things was that fear came upon the people. Now, the, the, fear is a little misunderstood. When we think of fear, we think of uh, the boogeyman or ghost, or we're afraid of something like that, or afraid to hit a deer on the way back to due west. Um, which is a legitimate fear, <laughs> you know. Uh, we, think, we think in terms of the, the scary thing. So biblical fear needs a little bit of explanation here. Uh, 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 it's interesting. The same God produces two different kinds of fear. For the godly, their fear is based on respect, honor, and an, uh, an awareness of supernatural power. For the worldly, it leads to terror, anxiety, and hopelessness. Now, it's interesting. If you go back... We got some illustrations here. You go back to Moses. Remember Moses met with God in the burning bush? And the burning desire of Moses was to see God's face. You remember that? He wanted that level of intimacy. He wanted more of God than he could experience even there at that burning bush. And what did God say? So I'll let my goodness pass before you, but you can't see my face. Anyone who sees my face will die. God's holiness is such that sinful people in our sinful state, cannot take it in. It, it, it's so powerful, so majestic, so otherworldly, so above us in our sinful condition that it would kill us. It would kill us. 
Yet, through Jesus Christ, that farness of God, that holiness of God, actually became ours to possess. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John, writing 1 John, probably right prior to his death, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet how we will be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Moses, as great as Moses was, his prayer wasn't answered to see the face of God. But the moment that we pass from this world into the next, when we're done with this body of sin, with the temptations of the evil one, we're in our purified state. We will see God. We will see God as he is. That's good news if you're a Christian. Some of you may not be Christians. So there's another side of fear, a terrifying side of fear. And we get a demonstration of this in Revelation 6. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. Then the kings of the earth... And the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Isn't that interesting? Same God, return of Christ. One literally would rather be crushed in a cave under a, a rock slide than to gaze upon his face. The other can't wait to see his face and are sitting there with, un, uh, with outstretched arms to a father who loves them. I want to be on that side. <laughs> I want you to be on that side. This kind of fear is important to understand the both, both sides of the blade of the, of the sword of spear. One is anxiety, terror, one is blessing. The whole difference comes between those who are Christian and those who are not. Did Christ die for your sins? Notice this. It's the wrath of God coming against the sins of the earth. Because these people that are in terror have not had their sins nailed to the cross as have the Christians. So... The people want to know what God was up to in all this. Who, they had heard the, all of this. They had heard about this and kept in mind saying, what, what will this child turn out to be? For the land of the Lord was certainly with them. And you wonder if that just sort of died off over the, the 30 years of John's life and his public ministry. Did people kind of keep up with him or not? But we know that he went off into the desert. So it probably as, as generations passed on, it's like so many other good things, uh, it evidently was... Uh, was forgotten, but Luke has already given us some insight in what this child will turn out to be. I love Philip Riken's uh, summary. He says, uh, Riken says this, this reminds us that Zechariah means that God remembers. Elizabeth means that God is faithful. John means God is merciful. Then there's the sweetest name of all, Jesus, which means God saves. Luke is telling the story of salvation and these people are part of the story. Isn't that beautiful? The meaning, of their, the meaning of their names is actually telling the gospel for us. 
So Zechariah is going to break out in song. That's what we do sometimes, right? When we get excited, we, we, our heart just fills. The reason why we sing here in church is we want to give praise to God in song. He breaks out in song here. We've already looked at two songs, the song of Elizabeth and the song of Mary. Uh, we're going to look uh, in the next two Sundays at the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, the song of the angels and the song of the Nuke Dominus of Simeon there, the Lord willing, the, on New Year's, uh, New Year's Sunday, New, uh, New Year's Eve Sunday. So we now come here to this wonderful song of Zechariah. Blessings to God is how it starts off with verse 67 through 75. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke the mouth of his prophets from old, salvation from your enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. To show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. So after these months of silence, it, uh, Zechariah just breaks out with praise to God. Blessed be the, uh, the Lord God Almighty. Uh, this, of course, this song is called the Benedictus for that first word, blessedness. Uh, and uh, Zechariah is just, as a priest, he is blessing God. You know, it's interesting. Um, remember, well, some of you don't remember, but 9-11, you know, when, uh, when the terror attacks occurred uh, in New York and at the Pentagon, uh, it, the, uh, it's funny, the churches were filled that Sunday. They were filled that Sunday. And... Uh, Everybody was asking very difficult questions. That was a very sobering moment for our nation, right? And, uh, and the, the big thing that got to be out on every marquee, marquee uh, uh, er, er, you know, signs out front, bumper stickers everywhere was God bless America, God bless America, God bless America. It didn't matter what, what it was. It could be a liquor store. It could be an elementary school. God bless America. Like one pastor said, the American Civil Liberties Union couldn't be found with a search warrant. They just shut their mouths because they knew that they were in the minority. Of, that you can't say things like that in public. Well, it's interesting. Our church in Columbia saw that. We think, you know, we do pray that God blesses America. But there, there's an aspect, too, where America has not obeyed God in many ways. And we actually came up with a bumper sticker. had a little American flag on it. And it said, it reversed it. America bless God. And so many people said, how can a person bless God? How can a mere person bless God? Zechariah knows. He's singing praise to God. He's giving blessings to God. He is blessing God through this. Uh, grateful hearts, but can't help but to praise God. This is the reason why you, must, you have to work constantly on contentment. A discontentment person does not enjoy what he has. What a Christian has is, a sal is salvation. Forgiveness of sins. And that should be the, the stuff of our songs in so many ways. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he's prophesying here as part of this song here. Uh, in, and like Mary's song, it is filled with scripture here. Verses 67 uh, through 70 are blessings directed towards God. And then verses 76 or, uh, uh, through 80 are blessings towards uh, his son, John the Baptist, as we see here. But he starts off here, blessed be the God of Israel. That's opposed to the pagan gods. He is not worshiping Mars. He wants everybody knows that. There is one God, and his name is Yahweh, and he, is, he has been best known through uh, the Israelites. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption with his people. This is a central theme of Luke's gospel. 
This idea that God is active, he is present, God cares. One commentator says this, he was entering our situation from the outside. He visited us because without this intervention, we could never be saved. Salvation is not a human invention, but a divine visitation. It is not something we achieve by going to God, but something God has done by coming to us in Christ. No one is ever saved except by the grace of God. And what does redemption mean? You know, that's one of those theological terms we throw around all the time. I asked my class at Anderson University, you know, what does redemption mean? All these good Baptist kids, mostly, you know, what does redemption mean? What does justification mean? What does propitiation mean? We're just so used to throwing around, we don't have, you know what it means? To pay the ransom price for someone who's been kidnapped or to pay a, a, a price for a slave to be freed. You were slaves to sin. You were captive by Satan. Christ redeemed you. He sprung you from the prison. The chains fell off. And you, you went to praise him. This happens because God visited us. Again, an allusion to the Christmas carol. Think about how it was that Scrooge repented. How it was that he came about. His heart was so hard. Even visits by his nephew uh, wouldn't cheer him. The example of Bob Cratchit wouldn't cheer him. The death of Marley didn't, didn't change him. He just got harder and harder, more and more inward. It took visitation. It took three spirits, three ghosts to come in and, and, and teach truth to him, to show him what an unexamined life looks like and how it will end if you don't change. And it did change, and he did repent. But it took those outside forces coming. It takes God coming from heaven into earth that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because this is a visitation that will change your eternal destiny. He has raised up a horn of salvation. The Old Testament symbol of strength is a horn. Of course, it's the, it's the business end of an ox or a rhino or a stag. Uh, primarily a bull or ox here. And it's interesting, if you look at uh, uh, old Romanesque art in Europe, an icogra uh, iconography, you, you often see this, uh, this symbolization of an ox here. Uh, when the four Gospels um, appear in, 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 uh, in icon form, they appear uh, with images that come to us from Ezekiel and Revelation chapter 4. Uh, Matthew is often appears as a winged man or an angel. Mark appears as a winged lion. John appears as an, e an eagle. And Luke appears as a winged bull, representing strength uh, and sacrifice. Of course, he's alluding to Old Testament scripture here, Psalm 132, 17. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. And, and, and uh, I mean, Zechariah had a long time to read these passages to understand the connection between his son and the coming of Messiah. He mentions David here. Now, again, this is why we know he's not talking about John right now, because John was not a descendant of David. John was a descendant of Aaron, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth were. So he's mentioned here the house of David. He's talking about the blessings of the coming of Messiah. He spoke by the holy prophets from my old. Of course, the prophet Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up. I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of the king, his kingdom forever. Yeah, it wasn't fulfilled in Solomon. It wasn't fulfilled in the other kings of Judah. They didn't establish those kings forever. 
Babylonian captivity came in, it, it disrupted, it broke that kingship. So it had to refer to Messiah here, and he understands that. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Now, Zechariah might have been thinking politically here, uh, and that's part of the problem of Israel at this time. They're always thinking politically. They, to them, salvation is getting rid of the Romans. Uh, this, uh, it's, get, it's, it's to be Solomon again. It's to be David again. Uh, and, uh, but he's, he's really making, uh, I think, a spiritual point as well here. Who are our enemies? Who are our enemies? You need to think from a spiritual standpoint. You need to have spiritual eyes to see this. Your enemies are the devil, right? Your enemies are your own flesh. Your enemies are the minions of the devil. 1 Peter 5 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil cannot have you, but he can sure try to make you miserable. And if you don't dwell upon these things, you will become miserable. If you don't think with spiritual eyes to show mercy towards our fathers and remember his holy covenant. Again, this term covenant comes back over and over again. Of course, the, the new covenant is mentioned in Jeremiah 31. Uh, maybe the, the greatest verse in all of new, uh, Old Testament. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Isn't that amazing? God remembers his promises by forgetting our sin. God remembers our promises, his promises by forgetting our sin. The oath which he swore to Abraham, of course, coming from Genesis 12, where Abraham would uh, bring about the blessings of the nations to grant us that we are being rescued from the hand of our enemies so we might serve him without fear. There's a reason why God saved you. And that's to glorify him, to serve him. You know, this is, we get upset when God actually expects things from us sometimes. Uh, but, but we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. We are to deny ourselves. And we are to trust in his providential care, to trust in his love here. Martin Luther coined the Latin term during the Reformation of Coram Deo. It was central to the idea of the Reformation. The idea is that, that we are to live in the presence of God. We live before the face of God. So God saves us with grace, but after he saves us, he has expectations for us, and that's in obedience. And sometimes people are afraid to preach that because they don't want to come off legalistic like you get saved by your good works. But I'm telling you, if you don't have good works, you're not saved. You're not saved. We are to live our lives quorum Deo, before the face of God, with the God who loves us. <laughs> that Father who is in heaven that we talked about earlier. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce had a great illustration. He, uh, I guess he got his doctorate in Switzerland. And they, they uh, in parts of Switzerland, they celebrate Carnivale, like uh, Mardi Gras. You know, Fat Tuesday. So, and, and, and the principle there is, now I've got, a, I've got a grandson in Louisiana, so I'm becoming more pro-Mardi Gras to a certain degree. So I've got to be careful here. But, uh, but the principle there, in a sense, in a dark way, is let's get all our sin done on Tuesday so that for Ash Wednesday, we can go confess and be done with it and, you know, start Lent and, and that kind of thing. So there's this, there's this, just this wild party on the, the streets of, uh, I think it was Zurich where he was. And, uh, and everybody wears masks. It's a, it's a masquerade kind of party. And uh, he said that several of the seminary students uh, wrote signs out in German and in French, and they would go around during that night, night of debauchery out on the town to get all their sin done before Ash Wednesday. And they would show up a sign that said, God sees behind the mask. You see, everyone lives Coram Deo. They just don't always know it. The difference is for the Christian, he enjoys it. 
He loves the gaze of his father. And he wants to do the things that his father uh, is pleased with. You remember when you were a kid and you, had a pl- you were doing a play or you had a sports event or whatever and you're kind of looking around in the, in the audience or on the bleachers and all of a sudden you catch the, the eye of your father, the eye of your mother, and you just kind of straighten up a little bit and you think, I'm going to hit a home run. I'm going to remember those lines now, <laughs> whatever it might be. That, our God is there always like that. And we are to serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The Apostle Paul speaks of this miracle uh, that we can actually walk in holiness and righteousness. We are positionally before him, but even practically speaking, there are aspects where we can, we can achieve here. Romans 6 says this, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members, the body parts, your parts of your body, members of your body, as sins, as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And this is key. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. You need to remember that because there's a lot of times you're tempted. You think, I just got to sin. I just got to sin. Or you got to think, I'm tired of this temptation. I'm just going to go ahead and sin and get it over with, right? This is a promise from God. Sin shall not be master over you. You've changed your slavery. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to God. Then he breaks in here to blessings on God, uh, to John here. And you, child, I'm starting with verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet. And you can see him, just old Zechariah, just blessing the Lord. Everybody's mouth is agape. And he learns over it, and he, and he looks at his own little baby son. He can't believe he's got a baby son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. So Zechariah obviously understands who John is supposed to be. He is the one that's going to prepare the way. He's not Messiah. He is the prophet who goes before Messiah. Uh, and, and indeed, he, he did, he, John fulfilled that blessing. This was prophetic, this blessing. Jesus says that there was none, uh, the, all those men born of women, there's none greater than John. He says that in Luke chapter 7. But it's not just because of his character, it's because of his ministry. I mean, John was a great guy, but it was because he was the one of all the prophets... Isaiah didn't get to do this. He saw it and he prophesied the coming of Messiah. Moses didn't get to do it. He was a type of the Messiah that was to come, a deliverer of Israel. But John the Baptist was the one to fulfill Malachi, the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for Messiah. Just remarkable. Fulfilling the prophecy that's given to Malachi. Isaiah says this, uh, notice he, John ends up in the desert at the end of this passage. Isaiah 40 says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the deserts a highway of our God. So, and what's he going to do? To give his people the knowledge of salvation for the forgiveness of sins. Basically, that is what salvation is, is the forgiveness of sins. 
when people were rejecting Christ in John chapter 8, the, the, the indictment he gave against them was says, you will die in your sins. In other words, you will die and every single sin will be held against you instead of the Christian who has his sins uh, forgiven here. And it's just a remarkable thing because it's not like he does this because we're such nice people. Romans chapter 5 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be, and that is declared just, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He saved us when we were enemies. We were waging war against God. And he made us from those who were fear, who want to hide in the caves from God's presence to those who seek out God's presence, who live quorum Deo. So very often what happened at the time, and you see this even with the apostles, the misunderstanding of the coming of Messiah and, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They, they thought Jesus, even to the end there, even right before his ascension, they still thought he was going to uh, uh, institute a, a, an earthly kingdom. Uh, he was going to be a new David. They were going to run out the Romans and that kind of thing. That was just the political view of the time. But John went and he prepared the way to repent from your sins, to think spiritual thoughts, not political thoughts, to think of the next world, not this world all the time, to prepare people to repent and to be sensitive spiritual so that when they heard the Sermon on the Mount, they understood that Jesus was calling them to repent and to come into the kingdom of God. And this is all because of the tender mercy of God. I love that. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He's the ultimate protector and provider. Again, quoting the principles from Isaiah here, he says that, the, that these are the, uh, the sun is rising, the sun is Messiah there. It's to shine upon those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the, Zanab, the land of Naphtali with content. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in the dark line, the light will shine on them. Whew. Boy, if there's ever a symbol of Christmas, it's light. We're surrounded by it. Light. The people who walked in darkness shall see a great light. They guide our way to the, peace, the way of peace. If you're not a Christian, you're in the darkness. If you're not in Christian, a Christian, you fear the face of God. You need to become a Christian. You need to become a Christian. What happens when you do become a Christian? What happens in this life when you walk? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This may be, if you become a Christian, this may be the first real Christmas you've actually had. Because you understand exactly what it means. It's not about presents and bows and turkey and anything else it's about god visiting his people in the form in the person of jesus christ 
We see here a prophetic statement again, for the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. The child continued to grow and become strong in spirit and lived in the deserts. The desert, of course, is a traditional place where God meets man. Jesus went out and was tempted, tempted in the desert. But it's interesting, Elijah went out into the desert. And John the Baptist is the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. And his message is to prepare a way for the Lord. So it's, it's so phenomenal how, how Luke brings in this nativity of John right prior to the nativity of Christ. And what's at stake with the two births of these two little babies is nothing less than eternal salvation for everybody who believes this story. Be one of those believers. Lord, we do turn to you in faith and pray, God, that you would just break our stony hearts. Save those who need to be saved. Let the light shine in the darkness. But the truth is, Lord, most of us are saved. But we're not walking in the light the way we should. We seem to be walking often in shadows. We're not looking upward. We're consumed with our own issues. And we're selfish. And I pray, Lord God, that as some people would come from darkness into light, that the others would come from some light to even greater light. And that this word would encourage us to do so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.